You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. As we uh, continue to look at some of these characters in the Old Testament who God used... But they were just average people. They weren't superheroes. They, matter of fact, they're, they're people you would have never picked. Uh, they are average people just like you and I, that God did miraculous, incredible works through. As you're finding your place, I um, just want to say thank you to all those who came over to RCC. I, I, when I looked out across the crowd, and it was a large crowd over there today, uh, people from all over the country, from Mississippi, Alabama, New York, uh, I met people from... Uh, we're South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, people from all over the place uh, who gathered to worship this morning. But also, when I looked across the crowd, I saw a whole bunch of blue shirts. I'm talking a sea of blue shirts. And I really appreciate you guys coming over there. I also appreciate the, the fact that I get to serve a church that's flexible enough and willing to move an entire service over to another location. You might not realize this, but there are a whole lot of churches in North Carolina within our Baptist tradition because of tradition, would never do that. Even, even when given by God an opportunity to greet people and meet people and serve people, would not do it for the sake of tradition. And I'm thankful I get to serve a church like you guys that see an opportunity and don't hesitate to take advantage of it. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me also, and more also, if if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Father, we are grateful for the opportunities that you give us as a church body to serve our community. We don't take that lightly. And Father, we believe that just as your word teaches us that we are to go and we are to make disciples, that we're to help people to take one more step of faith in your direction. Father, that we are called to make disciples. Father, we know that your word tells us clearly what that means. It means that we're to follow you, to be learners of you and then to tell others about the love and the grace and the mercy we've found. Well, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your kindness and mercy. We thank you, Father, for how we've seen your hand move this past week, your answered prayer. But Father, this morning, we have to face a reality that following you is not always easy. You told us that. Lord, you told us that. And Lord, you illustrated that when you told your disciples that following you means to take up a cross. So Father, this morning we were confronted with the reality that that there are many who are quitting. There are many who are giving up. There are many, Father, who are weighing out the consequences. They're weighing out what it costs to follow and they're choosing something less because it's easier. And Father, maybe this morning there are some sitting here that 
or choosing an easier path. Father, through the life of Elijah, through his victories and also through his failures, speak to us this morning. We ask it in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I was in a meeting this week with some of the key leaders in, in the North Carolina Baptist world, and um, one of the things that I heard concerned me. I, I kind of knew that this was happening, but until I heard it directly from them, uh, I was just kind of speculating. But the reality is, is that post-COVID, after all this that we've been through as a community, post-COVID, many, many, many pastors have left the ministry for good. After coming through COVID, they have decided that it'd be a lot easier to just go punch a time card somewhere and be a Walmart greeter, nothing wrong with that, or go back to teaching school, absolutely nothing wrong with that, or go back into industry or or to go back to maybe being a contractor, or for many of them, they're just trying to figure out what to do. But for many of them, even later in their life, they have abandoned the ministry. And it's not just pastors, but a whole lot of people have abandoned the church because of fear. But really, what we're finding is because of convenience. It's just easier, folks, to stay at home. It's just easier to not have to deal with all that's going on in our community and just live in a little Christian bubble and just live inside of there and enjoy the safety that it provides or at least the seeming safety that it provides. It's, it's easier to get into a mentality of, of as long as our family is right with the Lord and as long as we are following Jesus, that we don't have to be concerned about neighbor and we don't have to concern, be concerned about gathering corporately as long as our four are okay or our five or our two or our three. We're seeing it all across the state. Let me introduce you to Elijah. Elijah, as maybe you know, is uh, considered to be one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. It's not just because he was a great man, and he was, but he was just an average man like we've, we've seen in Job, and we've seen in Gideon, and now Elijah. Next week, we'll see Hezekiah. Just average, everyday people that God used in a tremendous way. Elijah is a prophet, and we find him kind of come on the pages of Scripture. He's not on here very long, and then he disappears, but he comes in at a key moment in the life of Israel. We have First and Second Kings, and this, these two books show us the rise, the, the, the leadership of various kings. Now remember, by the time we get to First and Second Kings, the nation of Israel is divided into two separate nations. We have the northern kingdom called Israel, and we have the southern kingdom often referred to as Judah. Ten tribes go to the north, two tribes remain in the south, and this is all connected to Solomon and his family, and we'll get into all that. What you need to know is we have two kingdoms, and with two kingdoms, you have two kings. And first and second kings, and also first and second chronicles, walks us through these different leaders who rise to power, some of them only a few months, some of them several years. And in the pages of first and second kings, we find that some kings led both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom to righteousness, led them by God's word, led them with faithfulness, but there were far many more who led the nation to idols and idolatry. So there is this king that comes on the scene in 1 Kings 16. His name is Ahab, and this dude is a evil guy. He is evil to the core. But the thing you need to know about Ahab is he's not really a leader at all. He has the title. He has all the pomp and circumstance that comes with it, 
but he's actually not the leader. It's his wife that's actually leading the northern kingdom, and her name is Jezebel. Jezebel is a Gentile, and she is the daughter of a priest, and that priest just happens to be the priest over a cult religion that worships a false god named Baal and Asherah. She is the daughter of the pastor of First Church Baal of downtown northern Israel. So Ahab thinks, hey, here's a great woman to marry, which by the way goes against everything that God told the Israelites. Remember, Ahab is a Jewish man. They've been told clearly, do not intermarry with the people inside the land. You're to drive them out. But what does he do? He looks at Jezebel and says, now there's somebody I want to have as my wife. And make no mistake about it, she is the leader of the northern kingdom of Israel in the background. She's the one calling the shots. Ahab is nothing more than a puppet in her hand. And this lady is ruthless and she hates, listen to me, I can't, I can't explain this to you deeply enough, she hates the nation of Israel and she hates the God that they serve. I'm talking deep hatred. It runs deep into Jezebel. So here we have this obvious conflict that is coming, like two trains on the same track coming head on towards each other. We have Jezebel, the default leader of the northern kingdom who loves to worship a false god named Baal. And then we have Elijah, the spokesperson of God, who's now been told by God, you are going to speak to this nation that has turned its back on me. Well, we have the setup of a great conflict. Just like we saw Job's faith and patience and great suffering and incredible loss. And we saw, we saw Job's comeback, not that he got his family and all of his wealth back. Job's comeback was that he now saw God with a much clearer understanding of who God is and the sovereignty of how he works in the world. We saw Gideon, the guy in a wine press, the guy who's scared to death, the guy whose knees are knocking together, who had zero courage. God takes that man and uses that man to overthrow an army of 135,000 with 300. So in, in Gideon, we see courage, not courage that he had, but courage that God gave him and prepared him to lead. Well, now we're going to see Elijah, just an average guy who's been given, quite frankly, an impossible task. But here's the thing about Elijah. He's going to have a tremendous victory. And it's right after that victory, what Elijah does that just simply does not make sense. 1 Kings 19, in those first four verses, absolutely make no sense in respect to what Elijah just witnessed. Be it what we find with Elijah... Is an average guy who does an amazing work on behalf of God, but not only does he fail miserably after this, but he quits. Not only does he quit, but he asks God to take his life. Now, where I want us to focus today is not so much the victory. I want you to see what happens to a man after this great victory and how God restores him. So to understand this great victory, to understand what's happening in chapter 19, we've got to back up into chapter 18. And I'm just going to kind of hit the high points here of what's happening in chapter 18. But here's what happens. Elijah issues a challenge to 450 prophets of Baal and another 400 prophets of Asherah. These are Jezebel's people. 
These are Jezebel's priesthood. This is the priesthood of the false god Baal. And here's one guy, Elijah, and he steps into the middle of this, well, fray, and he says to Ahab, he says, Ahab, I'll tell you what, bring the best you've got. Bring all 450 prophets, bring all 400 prophets of Asherah, 450 prophets of Baal, meet me at Mount Carmel, and we're going to find out who the true God actually is. Sounds compelling. So Ahab, no doubt, gets Jezebel's permission. Jezebel, no doubt, we're not told this in Scripture, but no doubt Jezebel is expecting a great victory because remember, she hates Elijah and she hates the nation of Israel and she especially hates the God of Israel. So here we are on the Mount, on Mount Carmel and we have 850 of the prophets of false gods against one guy. Now I told you last week with Gideon, I told you that the God plus one faithful person is a majority. Okay, I don't know if you got that then, but let me reinstate, let me state that again. You being faithful to God and obedient to God alone with God in you, that's a majority in any situation. Amen. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you and God, you obedient to him, you sold out to him, that's a majority in any situation, period. In any victory, any, anything that God's called you to do, any task that he's called you to do, God will equip you to accomplish that task. So Elijah, one guy, against 850. Look at verse 20. Back up into chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So now we have an incredible audience of people watching here. On one side, we have the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah and all of their people. On the other side, you've got the nation of Israel. Now, in the nation of Israel, you have people who were kind of playing both sides of the coin here. Some days they were worshiping God, some days they're worshiping Baal. They're kind of floating back between two. So Elijah steps forward and says this, verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? And I would offer you the same question today. How long are you going to continue to run back to the world thinking that the world is going to fix your problems, thinking that the alcohol is going to fix your problems, thinking that the drugs are going to fix your problem? You have been there, you have done that, and it has brought destruction into your life. You have chased after every relationship. You think the next guy or the next girl is going to fix your life. You think the next job or the next pay increase is going to fix your life. You're thinking that when the stock market turns around and you're 401k looks better than it does right now, that, that you're going to be okay. When inflation goes down, you're going to be okay. But you and I both know that's a lie. You've been running that path for a long time, and it has never brought satisfaction. So move back to Israel on Mount Carmel. Here you have these Israelites, God's people, who are now worshiping false gods on some days and worshiping God on other days and just kind of mixing it all together. And Elijah steps forward and says, how long are you going to limp? between two. It's almost like what Joshua said all the way back at the end of his ministry. He says, choose this day who you're going to serve. Elijah's going to issue that same challenge. But today what we're going to see on Mount Carmel is the true God answer. But when he does, quit limping between two. Choose. Listen, if you're, if you're struggling with atheism, if you're struggling with some other God whether that be money or power or fame, 
I'm going to issue a challenge to you today. Choose. Make a choice. Either, either choose Christ, the resurrected king, or, or, or go all in. I'm telling you, go all in on whatever false god you're serving, but let's quit limping between the two. Quit playing both sides of the coin. As they used to say back in the old days when I was growing up in church, quit straddling the fence. Choose. If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? The prophet of God says, if Baal is real, then hey, go all in. We're going to find out in just a moment who's real. But if Baal is your God, then go all in. But don't limp and go back and forth between one or the other. Choose today who you're going to serve and stick with it. He says, and the people did not answer him a word. One guy. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am only left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. Let two bulls be given. And he goes through all of this set of processes or, or, or what they're going to do. So here's what's going to happen. They're going to build two altars, one to Baal, one to Jehovah God. He's going to let them go first. So the 450 prophets of Baal step forward. They, they build their altar. They get the bull. They, they put the bull on the altar. They, they, they prepare it as a sacrifice to Baal. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to say, Elijah's going to say, look, the God who answers by fire, the one who takes the altar, burns it up, let that God be God and all other gods liars. It's a pretty strong, pretty strong, uh, bold commitment there, is it not? If Baal is who you say he is, by the way, he's the, the God of the weather. <laughs> I like what Paul said this morning at RCC. He can throw down lightning bolts. Now, shouldn't be a problem, right? That's what they believed about their God. They believed that he was in control of the weather and control of a whole lot of other things. So if he's God, then certainly he'll have no problem whatsoever to throw down a lightning bolt and just burn up the offering. So you guys go ahead and go first. So they go. They get their bull prepared. They get their altar prepared. And they're, they're out there dancing around and they're screaming and they're yelling and they're they're calling out to Baal. Hour after hour after hour goes by. Elijah, he's sitting over there under a tree. I, I always pictured him with like a piece of broom straw in his mouth, just kind of picking his teeth, letting this just play out. We're now past noon, if you look at verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, crying, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Neither is he musing or is he relieving himself? Is he. On a journey, or perhaps he's asleep. In other words, Elijah's kind of mocking them, going, hey, guys, maybe your God's taking a nap. Maybe he's, literally in the Hebrew, maybe he's using the restroom. Elijah is saying, where is your God? You've, you've danced, you've yelled, you've prayed, you've done everything. And I believe on that day, you couldn't hear a bird chirp. It was so silent on that hill that day. That even, when, even with all the yelling and screaming of the prophets of Baal, there was dead silence. I believe God didn't even let the wind blow. God didn't even let the leaves move. God didn't even let anything, any sound happen on that day. It was dead silent. Well, then they began to cut themselves, which was part of their ritual practice of Baal. They believed that they needed to shed their blood to, to get the God's attention, that maybe, maybe he is busy doing something else. So we'll, we'll cut ourselves and we'll bleed ourselves to show this God how much we trust him and worship him and follow him. Dead silence. So, so Elijah lets us go for a little while, and eventually Elijah says, okay, enough's enough. Verse 30. 
Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And the people came near to him and he repaired the altar and he, he, he stacks up 12 stones representing the tribes of Jacob. And then he, he begins, he prepares everything and then they, they pour water. He tells the, 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 the other servants to pour water on it. Four times they pour a whole bunch of water. He had a trench dug around the altar and the trench is full of water. The, the animal sacrifice is soaked with oil and the wood is soaked with water. And I believe Elijah did that to say, look, there is no way I'm pulling any kind of trick here. Either my God is going to destroy this or he's not. But just so y'all don't let it go away and say, oh, I had a match in my back pocket, there is no way this is going to burn. Not by human understanding. Elijah, in the Hebrew language, prays 14 words. 14 words. And at the end of that prayer, verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me that these people may know that you are Lord that you are, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Look at verse 38. Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. I don't believe there was one, hardly any second of time that went by from the time Elijah finished his prayer to that bolt of fire comes out of heaven. It hits this altar. It burns up the animal. It burns up the wood. It burns up the stones. It burns up all the water, and there's nothing left but a black spot on the ground. You can't find 12 stones. You can't even find a morsel of dust. God has answered. The only true God has answered. Now, certainly we're going to have a revival, right? I mean, in all that we see in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of average everyday men and women that God uses to, to do some great thing, right? So, so at this moment, certainly the nation of Israel is going to turn back to God, and it seems like that might be the case, but history tells us it's not really not the case. But you would have to imagine that Elijah is on cloud nine, man. Elijah has just witnessed an incredible work of God. Not only did he witness it, but all the false prophets and, more importantly, the nation of Israel. So Elijah just got a big old boost to his ministry. Elijah, man, he should just have a long history or a long time of walking with the Lord, right? Now we're ready for chapter 19. So Ahab goes and tells Jezebel all that Elijah done. Now, right before this, after the fire falls, Elijah turns his attention towards the prophets of Baal, and he says, slaughter every one of them. Matter of fact, if you remember, that's what God commanded the people to do when they went into the promised land to start with. That's what God had told them to do because God knew they couldn't live together with these people. These people had been judged by God for their actions and for what they had done. So, 450 of Jezebel's priests and prophets are slaughtered. Well, you can imagine that Jezebel's not too happy about that. So Ahab, in his weak husband-king role, goes home, tells Jezebel all that happened, and Jezebel says this, send a messenger to Elijah. And here it is in verse 2, so may the gods do to me and more also. You know what Elijah, you know what she's saying? She's saying that let my gods, Baal, Astra, do to me, do worse to me, destroy me, take my life, if I don't 
kill Elijah within the next 24 hours. Now let's, let's get our arms around what she's saying. The very gods that were just defeated at Mount Carmel, the very gods that are no gods at all, that did not show up, that did not burn the altar, which proves in fact that they are false. Jehovah God has mentioned, has spoken. God has burned the altar up and Jezebel doesn't care in the least. It's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place for any person who recognizes that God is God, but then reject him for something less. We see something of Jezebel's heart here. What happened on Mount Carmel didn't matter to her. Because in her mind, there's only really only one God that matters. In her mind, that's Baal, and to a lesser degree, Ashtoreth. So, he, so she's, she makes an oath here to her false gods saying, y'all can kill me, y'all can take me out if by tomorrow, this time, I don't kill this pest, this troubler of the nation. Now what should happen at this point, and this is, this is what blows our minds, what should happen at this point is when the messenger comes to Elijah, Elijah has a little message for Jezebel. You go back and tell Jezebel, to bring all she's got, to bring it on. I just had, we just saw God have a great victory at Mount Carmel. He is the only true God. And Jezebel, if you want, if you got a problem with me, you come see me and let's, let's have it out. I mean, imagine Elijah off of Mount Carmel after all that he's seen. You would imagine that this man is so emboldened, that this man is so confident in the power of God, that his faith is so strong, that there is no way at this moment in time that he's going to back off. And then we read verse 3. And folks, verse 3 makes no sense. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. It says here that he ran to Beersheba, and he leaves his servant. The, the, the prophets often would have a servant that worked with them and helped them accomplish what God had called him to accomplish. And by leaving his servant, you know what, you know what Elijah's doing? He, he's not just running because he's afraid. He's done. Elijah's done. At the most strange time, Elijah says, I'm done. He cashes in. I'm done with the ministry. I'm, I'm, I'm done with being the mouthpiece of God. And this could not be a more strange time for Elijah to do that. Well, actually, it's not so strange after all. As a matter of fact, did you know that that most, a lot, I should say most, many, let's put it that way, many moral failures happen in the life of pastors, missionaries, ministries at the peak of their ministry. I'm talking about when, when the gospel's going forth and lives are being changed and God is doing the miraculous and God's doing powerful things. Did you know that it's in those moments that I have seen more than my share of of good men and good women fail in the most heinous of ways. As a matter of fact, sometimes a great victory is followed by spiritual attacks, moral failures, and even deep depression. Why is that? Why, why, why is it that that often happens? And you no doubt, you, maybe you've had this experience. Maybe when everything was going right spiritually, it was right after that that, man, things just went off the rails. And you can't reconcile this in your mind as to, to why that happened. Well, it's oftentimes with victories, we, we take our eyes off God. It's oftentimes in victories 
that we forget that God is the one who brought the victory. It's oftentimes in those great triumphs, prayers answered, lives touched, then maybe we begin to take a little credit for it. What happened with Elijah? Let me, let me just share with you what I think happened with Elijah. First of all, I think Elijah, I think he's spent physically. I think he's worn out. I think he is completely, if, if we, we know the term burnout, you know, burnout in your career. Elijah is burnout physically. Why, why would I say that? He's been on the run for three years. And during those three years, he's had very little to eat. He's had nothing but trouble. He's had nothing but physical attacks. If you remember, he, he's with, he's at one point in a cave hiding out. And if it weren't for God providing ravens to feed him, he would have starved to death. And then later on, he runs into a widow, and it's through that widow that God provides for him. But the fact is that all this time, Elijah's been on the run, three years. And if you can imagine for a moment that all that three years of hard ministry and hard work culminates in this moment at Mount Carmel, and, and Elijah's expecting revival, Elijah is expecting people to turn back to God, but they don't. Can you imagine how hard that would be? Elijah says, physically, I'm done. I don't have anything else to give. Notice this. He says, but he went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a tree, and he falls asleep. I think that's interesting. I think that's an interesting part. I mean, with all that Elijah's got going on, now's the time for a nap. I'll tell you why he's taking a nap. He's exhausted. Physically exhausted. Not only is he spent physically, but he's spent spiritually he is worn out spiritually. He's been under intense pressure from Israel, from Ahab, from certainly Jezebel. And after that victory at Mount Carmel, he sees no change spiritually in the nation. He sees no one repenting. I wonder if even Elijah thought that after that victory at Mount Carmel that maybe even Jezebel herself would acknowledge that Jehovah is God. That doesn't happen. What does she do? She turns back to her gods to take Elijah out. He is worn out. I also think that Elijah feels like a failure. More times than I would like to admit, ministry has felt like taking an axe that has no axe head on it and just frailing at the base of a tree. I mean, I'm just swinging as hard as I can. I'm trying to do what God's called me to do and trying to do it faithfully. But there have been times in my walk with Jesus where it feels like that, that that axe I'm slinging is nothing more than a handle and it's bouncing off and hit me in the face. There's no axe head, not making any cuts, not making any difference, not making any changes. And man, it can take a toll on you spiritually. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a relationship and you've been doing what the Lord has asked you to do, but you've not seen any change. So at this point in your life, you're like, I'm done. I'm done spiritually. I'm done with the church. I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with prayer. I'm done with it all. It's not working. In my, in my human estimation, it's not changing a thing. So I'm going to just quit. He's done. Notice in verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. In this spiritual fatigue, in this physical fatigue, Elijah calls out to God and says, God, just kill me. Just take me out. Here's another reason I believe he's spiritually done. Look what he says. 
He says, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, Lord, take me away. My life is no better than my father's. Now, I want you to, I want you to hear what he's saying. Well, first of all, Elijah's having a pity party. Let's just all kind of accept that. We've all done that. We've all had a little pity party. But listen to what he's saying. Elijah is saying, I am no better than anyone else. In other words, I'm a failure from a long line of failures, and we've all failed, and it's not worth failing anymore, so spiritually I'm done. Here's what happens when you get physically worn out and spiritually worn out. Here's what happens. You begin to believe lies about yourself. You begin to believe half-truths. You heard me say this before that you have a conversation with you more than anybody else does. And my goodness, you're pretty hard on yourself sometimes, aren't you? Some of the things you say to yourself, you would never say to anybody else. You make a mistake, you're worn down. Listen to what you're saying to yourself. Go back, go back, think about the last big mistake you've made, last big failure, and just have a replay in your mind of some of the things you said to yourself. You said to yourself that you're useless. You said to yourself that you're, you're, you have no meaning in life. You said to yourself that I have no place in this world. You said to yourself that you are worthless. And every bit of that is a lie right out of the pit of hell. If there's a voice in your head that's telling you you're worthless, that is not the voice of your father. You need to know the difference. And folks, that can take you into very dark places. Elijah's in that dark place. He says, I'm no better. I often, when I was reading this, I was thinking, did, did Elijah at one point think he was better than his father's? Kind of begs a question, doesn't it? But at this point, his life is a complete failure in his mind. No revival, no, no response. Almost like, almost like no response and invitation Elijah provides the greatest invitation the world has ever seen, I guess, up until Jesus. And in that moment, nobody, nobody responds after seeing fire fall from heaven. And Elijah walks away from that going, what else can I do? He spent physically, he spent spiritually, and then he spent ministerially. I know that's not a real word. He's done with ministry. Elijah has nothing else to give, and he believes he's all alone. He believes he is completely and utterly alone. He's the only one left. It's just him against the world, another lie that we tend to believe. So with Elijah being broken physically, broken spiritually, and broken in his ministry, what's God going to do? Well, guess what? God answers every one of those issues. Notice what God does first physically. As he's running for his life to Beersheba, verse 4, he goes a day's journey in the wilderness, and he came down and he sat under a broom tree, and he sat that he might die. And he lay down and he slept under the broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. Here, here it is, God providing the most basic things to Elijah at the very moment he needed them. Now that seems rather simplistic, doesn't it? But here's the thing, when we're in that place of brokenness, and we're so focused on ourselves, and all we're focused on is what we don't have, it's very important in that moment to look up and go, what do I have? God, you give me this bowl of Cheerios this morning. Thank you. God, you provided that, that dozen eggs in the refrigerator. God, you've provided me a car and a job and a family. You've provided me friends that I can talk to. God, you've provided all these things. I'm going to tell you something. The antidote to this kind of darkness is simply being grateful for what God has already done. It works every time in my life if I can just think to do it. He's in a bad spot, 
What does God do? God provides food for him. Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Y'all going to think I'm crazy when I tell you this, but look, some of you are spent physically. This is going to be one of the most simplistic things you hear in this message all day. Some of y'all just need a nap. Your, your spouse will be tickled to death if you just get some rest. Your, your coworkers would be tickled to death if you went in tomorrow and you're finally rested up and you're not got that bitter look on your face that you've been having every day because you're running around all weekend long. And by the way, you got that screen in your face till two in the morning and you wonder why you can't sleep. And you wonder why you get up in the morning and you have nothing to give. You wonder how it is that over a weekend, even a vacation weekend, you go into work on Monday morning and you feel like you're just the walking dead. Some of y'all just need a nap. Some of y'all just need a good meal with your family and a good nap where the drool runs out the side of your mouth all over the couch and the bed is wet where you've drooled all over yourself. You woke up and you don't even know what day it is. Some of y'all need a Sabbath rest. Boy, today would be a good day to get one, wouldn't it? You know, God didn't need rest when he created the whole entire universe. God, God didn't say, man, we're out here, so I'm going to take a day off. God didn't need rest. You know why he did that? It's an example for you to follow. So that you would remember that you're not God, that you can't do all things, and you can't work 24, seven days a week. You need some rest. You need to stop. And Elijah, get this, Elijah doesn't even realize it. Elijah at this moment thinks that God has abandoned him. But what is God doing in the moment of his darkness? Providing, as God always does, providing a place to rest, providing food, the most basics of life that you need. And maybe you need that right now more than anything else. Maybe you just need to stop. Even when you go on vacation, you can't stop, right? You're one of those top A personalities that has the agenda, even for vacation, and you can't even stop long enough to, to get some racing. You come back stressed out more than you went. Elijah is being provided for by God in the moment of his darkness. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat. Now, I want you to know this sentence, for the journey is too great for you. What journey? Wait a minute, I thought Elijah had quit. I thought Elijah's going out in the wilderness to die. He's already left his servant at Beersheba. Elijah is done in Elijah's mind, but he's not done in God's mind. The, the angel says, you've got a journey ahead of you. Really? I thought I was just running away from the Lord. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank. And in the strength of that food, he went 40 days and 40 nights to Oreb, the Mount of God. What's going on here? So 40 days, 40 nights, and Elijah's mind, he's just running. He's just getting as far away from Jezebel as he can so he can die and be done with ministry, have a nice little funeral, go, go be with God. That's, that's, that's what's going on in Elijah's mind, but not God's mind. You know what God's doing? God is directing his path, directing his steps, not so that he's running away from God. Guess what he's doing? He's running right, head straight, headlong, right into God himself. And so it is with you. The very moment you think you're running away, you're running right headlong into God. God is directing his path to Mount Oreb. You know what Mount Oreb is? It's Mount Sinai. <laughs> There's some pretty cool stuff happening at Mount Sinai. Moses talking to, to God and God talking to Moses. It's almost though God is still directing his path. So get this, not only does God provide for him physically, but God is going to provide for him spiritually. God is directing his path, running him straight, headlong, right towards God himself. That's what a good father does. 
Good, good fathers don't just throw their kids aside when they get in a tough spot. No, fathers and mothers run back to those kids and keep getting in front of those kids and keep questioning those kids and keep helping those kids. You don't just abandon them, especially when they need you. So, so God is going to provide spiritually for Elijah. Look at verse 9. Then he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? You see, that's more than just a, hey, what are you up to, Elijah? What's going on, Elijah? God already knows. Now, this is a question that, that Elijah has got to answer. This is a question that God is asking to probe the heart of Elijah so that Elijah recognizes Elijah's not where Elijah's supposed to be. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous. Or I've been zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars, and they have killed the prophets with the sword. And I, even I, and the only one who left. What do you hear? The pity party here. Oh, what was me, guys? Just me. Nobody else loves you like I do. And they've all given up on you, but I, 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 am, I am right here, Father, and I've done everything that you've asked me to do, but I'm done, and that's it. It's over. And God says, go out and stand on the mount before me. So Elijah goes out, and God does something amazing here. He, he blows this heavy wind across this mountaintop. God didn't speak. And all of a sudden, there's this earthquake, and rocks are splitting, and God doesn't speak. All of a sudden, there's fire, and, and certainly on Mount Sinai, God would speak out of fire, right? You remember the bush that was on fire but didn't get consumed? Certainly, God's going to speak through the fire. God doesn't speak. And then everything calms down, and there's a still, small voice that speaks to Elijah. A low whisper. Verse 13, Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in a cloak. He's scared that he's going to go out here and see God himself. He goes out there, and he gets the same question again. Why are you here? What, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now Elijah's in a better place to, to think about this. You see, he's not where God had called him to be. Why is that? It's because you're afraid. It's because you think you're a failure. It's because you think that somehow what I'm up to and what I'm doing spiritually in the nation of Israel is somehow contingent upon you, Elijah. I don't always work through the earthquakes or the fire or the wind. Sometimes I do the greatest work through a still small voice. And Elijah, what you need to hear is my voice. I provide it for you physically. I'll provide for you spiritually. You need to know just how far you've wandered from my will. Not only does he provide for him physically and spiritually, he provides for him ministerially, ministry-wise. He said to him, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go now, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. All right, so there's going to be a change in command. Not only is there going to be a change in command, but I'm going to give you another prophet that you can then pour into. His name is Elisha. You're going to pour into him. And oh, by the way, uh, Elijah, just so you know, there are 7,000 of my people who have not bowed, bowed the knee to Jezebel. So get out of your pity party. Dust your cloak off. Let's get up. There's work to do. And that work is not in this cave. Why are you here, Elijah? The work is not here. The work is where I called you. It's time to get back to work. It's time to go do what I've called you to do. In our, in our context, it would be, it's time to take up your cross and follow Jesus. 
Jesus never told you it would be easy. Jesus never told you that you would be embraced by the world. Jesus never said that, that, that you would ever have to go through life and never have to sacrifice anything or give up anything. Jesus never said that following him was going to be a bed of roses. So it's time to quit lamenting. It's time to quit making excuses. It's time to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. But choose this day who you're going to serve. Choose. Either follow Jesus, maybe some commitment you made years ago, Maybe you followed that with baptism. But it's time to quit making excuses, folks. Our world, our community needs to know and needs to see Jesus lived out in you. The time is not to be hiding in a cave. The time is not to be in our little Christian bubble. The time is not for us to hang out in this building and talk about how great Jesus is. Now, today, this very moment, it's time for us to go out there where we've been called to go Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you're not fishing, you're not following. Matthew 4, 19. No more excuses. Choose this day who you're going to serve. Choose. Elijah, the great comeback in Elijah, because guess what he did? He went back. I don't think he felt all that great about it. I, I can imagine that even that moment on God, he, even that moment on the mountain with God, he's not like, yay, I don't think he's completely over-enthused, but guess what he does? He's obedient, and he goes back. Now, Elijah doesn't know this, but later on, what Elijah did in these moments actually does result in revival for a period of time. But I want you to notice how God provided exactly what Elijah needed at prices precisely when he needed it. At the very moment, Elijah needed physical strength, God provided. At the very moment, he needed spiritual strength, God provided. At the very moment, he needed perspective on ministry, God provided it. But understand this, that God is willing to provide every bit of that in you, but he will not provide it as long as you're seeking that from some other false God. Are you seeking him for it? Notice that God knew exactly what he was going through. You might say, well, we don't have a mountain that we can run to, that we can hear from God. No, you have something far greater. Far greater than what Elijah had. Far greater than Mount Carmel. You have something far greater than that. You have access to a holy God as part of the priesthood of the believers. You, as a believer, have an audience with God. Elijah didn't have that, but you do. Well, you might say, well, we don't, we haven't seen a miracle at Mount Carmel. We haven't, we can't go up on a mountain and call God to bring fire down. No, we've, we've seen something far more significant than that. Oh, man, we, we have something far more significant than a Mount Carmel. We have a Golgotha. We have a garden tomb that is now empty. That's far greater than what happened on Mount Carmel. And not only that, this Christ that you put your faith in lives inside of you. Elijah didn't have that. So, so we've got Golgotha, we've got Mount Calvary, we've got an empty tomb, we've got the history of the church, we've got the Holy Spirit living in us. You don't, you don't really need anything else except to obey and to follow. We live in a time where depression and anxiety, we, we're seeing, just in our week-to-week ministry here, we are seeing a tsunami of depression. COVID, yes, all that's gone on the last few years, yes, but I, I would also include in that inflation. People are having a hard time making ends meet, and, and I, I've had people come to our food pantry who are Elijah's who've given up. I mean, they have given up. 
I've had people sit right out here and talk to me. Just a few weeks ago, I had a young lady sit right out here in those chairs and just tell me all that she'd been through. And I can tell you where she was at. She was at a place where she was ready to take her own life. Folks, week after week after week after week, we're seeing this. And I would have to imagine that you guys and those watching online this morning, maybe you're in that dark place. You are done physically. You are done emotionally. You are done spiritually. And you're done with ministry. And you're done with God. And you're done with all of it. I think you need to hear these words this morning. God is not done with you. He loves you. He's not giving up on you. And folks, it's a dangerous place. The, the next choices that you make, the next decisions you make in that place are critical. Because there's a voice in your head right now. There's a voice in your head in that dark place that's telling you some awful things. You're listening to it. And maybe we just need to be thankful for what God has provided. Maybe we just need to consider all that God has done in our life. Maybe we need to stop and pause for a minute and go, wait a minute. God is providing for me in this moment. I just didn't see it before. That voice in your head, if it's tearing you down and trying to destroy you, that's not the voice of your Father. And you be well not to listen to it. Father in heaven, we're thankful for people like Elijah that when we look at their life, we see that the failures do not define us. Failures do not determine our wealth and our value. And Father, it reminds us that not all, none of us are perfect. We make mistakes. But Father, it's in those moments of mistakes that far too often people tend to quit and give up. And then, Father, after that, the, the depression, the anxiety, the, the darkness, and the voice in our head that begins to tell us that we're useless, that life really is meaningless. And Father, then we begin to get angry and bitter and go deeper and deeper into that dark place. Father, I would imagine that there are people here today that's maybe in that place. So, Father, we pray that you'd speak to them today. Not only are they loved by you, but they're loved by this church. And Father, you will provide for them. You already are all that they need. And for some, Father, that may be salvation for the very first time. Surrendering all to you and being changed from the inside out. So Father, this, at this moment of time when we worship together corporately, speak to hearts. I pray that they would take the step to reach out to somebody, to be honest, to seek out some help, but Father, they would recognize that you have not abandoned them, not even for one second. We ask all this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media.